everybody. What's going on? Welcome back for another episode of your favorite weekly podcast, Ranching Reboot, the podcast that's rebooting your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. Support for this episode provided by my amazing patrons on Patreon.com and my awesome subscribers on Spotify.com. Thank you guys so much. If you'd like to join them, be one of the many show supporters, check the links down in the show notes. Support for this episode also provided by Wild Ass Soap Company in McCook, Nebraska. My source for soap, deodorant, body spray, and CBD products. With over 25 soap scents, you're sure to find something that smells great and helps keep you clean. And this winter, if you've got cracked and chapped hands, check out the Hemp Seed and Aloe Lotion. It brings instant relief. If you're not a big fan of lotion, I use their Beef Tallow Ranch Balm for the same thing. Sometimes I even put it in my beard because it kind of smells good. Here at our house, sometimes we also like to do some strange things, like hang Christmas stockings for our dogs. And this year, our dogs are getting peanut butter-flavored CBD treats from Wild Ass Soap Company. Don't forget about your furry buddies this holiday season. And check out all these items and more at wildasssoaps.com reboot. And don't forget to use the coupon code reboot at checkout for an extra, extra discount. That's wildasssoaps.com reboot or click on the link in the show notes. Coupon code reboot. Support for this episode also provided by my friends at the High Plains Journal, presenter, presenters of Soil Health U. If you're anything like me, you recognize the benefit of continuing education and networking with other producers. Come join me at Soil Health U in Salina, Kansas, January 17th and 18th, 2024. Soil Health U has an amazing track record combining soil health education with a top-notch trade show and plenty of demos and innovative exhibits. This year, there's a great variety of topics from soil testing to cover crops and on to grazing. Make sure you plan to attend Soil Health U. You can learn from some of the best rising stars in regenerative agriculture, like my friend and previous podcast guest, Macaulay Kincaid. Uh, check out number eight and number three. I'll put some links in the show notes. Let's all go to Soil Health U, January 17th and 18th in Salina, Kansas. Register today at SoilHealthU.net or click the link in the description. For this week's episode, I tried something a little bit different. I packed up some gear and I traveled over to Clements, Kansas and met my friends Josh and Gwen Hoy for lunch. Well, I didn't go to Clements. I went to Florence, and we had lunch at the fantastic Branding Iron in downtown Florence. And then we went out to the ranch and sat down in their living room and recorded an awesome podcast. So I'm still messing around with different microphones and, and different workflows. So let me know what you guys think about the audio quality and uh, content this week. I think it was a really great episode. Uh, Josh and Gwen and I sat down face-to-face -face and just pushed the record button and had a great conversation and didn't really look at it for two hours. So... You know the deal. After um, after an ad and some music, here we go. Well, Josh and Glenn, this is, gosh, this is just such a beautiful house and a beautiful ranch. Um, thanks for thanks for inviting me to come back and and hang out with you guys today. So, how's things been? Good. We've had a uh, a dry year until quite recently. Yes. But um, a very eventful and exciting year. To... Like how how bad has it been dry? Very bad. Worse than the last several dry spells. Um, it was unusual in that we grew quite a bit of grass because we had some little rains all along. Yes. But we just didn't have any runoff and our ponds were bad our springs quit running and our wells started going so uh, water was the big pinch but we actually grew some grass not you know 
a great year for grass. And in this area is very dependent upon rainfall for our water. water. Yeah, for surface water. Right. So. so for context for the listeners, we're here in the Flint Hills, kind of on the north end toward the west side. Mm -hmm. And you can't really put a pipeline in the ground here, can you? It's very expensive. Yeah. If you're going to pipe water anywhere and our wells are such, just we don't have the water supply underground to supply a pipeline either. Our wells are small, two to four gallons a minute is a good well. Yeah. So almost all of the water in Flint Hills is going to be what the Texas boys would call a stock tank, which yeah. us normal folk well. would yeah. call a pond. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yes. So. And springs, we have good springs. So, you know, spring developments and, and natural springs are great. But a lot of those are very much wet weather springs. Yeah, and you have to have rainfall to recharge them. So. Now, I'll admit, you know, we were kind of all in the same boat until may yeah yes and then it started raining out in the west in may and i started catching it kind of at the end of may and it just never seemed to get here and i feel kind of bad because you know it, as soon as it started raining and for me in may i'm like oh things are fine now and, yeah and it was kind of later in the summer i started to realize that oh yeah there's you know 90 percent of the rest of my friends in the state <laughs> they didn't catch these lucky rains in May and June and they're not not doing so well. But you said you guys did get enough range to keep the grass growing and alive, but not enough to keep the pond ponds right. going. Can you tell me how that was a management challenge? Oh, I mean, <clears throat> it was frustrating. We had grass, but there were several pastures we just couldn't graze um, because there's just no water. I mean, we could have hauled water, but I can't make that pencil. I don't know how people do. Um, and I don't want to haul water, so I guess that's another reason I can't make it pencil. You can but, wrap up all day hauling water. Oh, and the money and, yeah, you blow Time. a couple tires and all of a sudden it's it's a two-day event, yeah. But no, so the, the frustration of not being able to graze where we did have grass and then, oh, quite frankly, overgrazing where we had water because we chewed up our grass there but had to keep things around for water. Um, you know, we sold most of our cows, uh, you know, historically high market. So it was, we wouldn't have had to sell them. We could have figured out a way, but with the market the way it was, it was, I don't know, ridiculous not to. It yeah. Was it was part it, of the plan and sometimes you just have to pull the trigger. Yeah. But it also gave us some other advantages too. So the pastures we didn't graze, we caught some late season rains which we now have some water. And so um, we do some custom grazing with some cows. And so um, we're just getting ready to drive the cows 20 oh, some miles down to those pastures that haven't been grazed. And we've got all the cool season grasses, we've got fresh water. And um, so yeah. it, uh, we're just grazing them in a different season. So, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. So, I I really I really want to talk about trip you guys went on. So why don't you tell everybody where you went? Oh, <laughs> well, um, uh, we went to Australia, and um, it was Josh had been to Australia Australia on a farm tour, I guess back in nineteen ninety eight. I think ninety seven. I think ninety seven, and um, but I had never been, and um, Josh and I just are fascinated with 
um, going different places and um, working for different ranches, or in this case, a station, just to see how things are done and um, see the practices, you know, for handling cattle and grazing and um, uh, just the whole gamut. It's just, it's fascinating to see how other people do it, so. And our, our friend Kristen Cloud, who has a ranch down by Benton, Kansas, she and her husband, uh, Brett, or we call him Chops, um, <clears throat> and we've worked with, with them for years and years. Years, yeah. And uh, Kristen found a Facebook ad, ad on Facebook <laughs> and one of the day working, day working, day thugs, I think. Is I think so. Asking for if people are interested in coming over to, there to work and. She answered and is about a six month process of getting it all worked out. Yes. And she asked, she asked me to go. Yeah. And then I was, I said to Josh, I'm like, well, Kristen just asked me to go. And he's like, you should. And I'm yeah. like, okay. <laughs> and then she asked Josh to go. So, yeah. So yeah. All, three went. all three of us went. It was amazing. Yeah. Good time. So, oh, go ahead. I, I was just sitting here thinking about it. It's kind of interesting that y'all used to run a dude ranch. Yeah. And you went to Australia to go to a dude ranch. I mean, that's that's yeah, what. Of, it, yeah. To be fair, that's kind of what it sounds like. Just yeah, absolutely. And um, although this, we were paid and employed. We were. Um, we were. And uh, it's definitely not a dude ranch. It was no. some of the hardest work. Oh my gosh. We've you know we've we've gone to Nevada and worked. We've gone other places and that's Colorado hard and but yeah. it was physically a very challenging trip. I mean, really difficult, hard work. You were driving 200 miles just to get where you were working for the day. Well, let's on rough roads and but rough terrain. Let's back it up a little bit. So tell them, tell them where we. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um. So, Kristen answered this ad, uh, and Peter Nunn is the manager of Clifton Hill Station, and Peter is only 35 years old. But I mean, a character. And interesting, yes. he's lived a fascinating life, and he's running one of the biggest ranching properties in the world. Yes. And How big? It, four, four and a half million acres. Yes. In one contiguous chunk. It was huge. And in a challenging landscape, to say the least. To say it the is least. one of the driest places, hottest places, uh, difficult places to, to live, much less run cattle. Yes. But and, they, and you were there in the winter. We were there in their late, kind of spring, oh, yeah. late winter, early spring. And um, yes, and it was still, it would get very hot during the day and co cold at night. Well, and, but, um, in and, the summer, they often have 120 degrees, right. you know, day after day after day. Well, and I have, I have to kind of laugh because they, the Australians, they all had winter parkas on and everything. And Kristen, Josh, and I would be in a vest and a and, and our work sweating, shirt. Yeah, yeah and sweating. <laughs> they were just, oh, it's so cold here. And we're like, like no, nope, nope. <laughs> yeah. It's warm enough. There are still snakes everywhere. Yes. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's so just to explain how challenging of an environment it is. Well, well, oh, let's sorry. let's go back. So Peter agreed to have us come over and we all three of us could get away for about two weeks. And um, so it was about a six-month process to get it all set up and, you know, to figure out timing with Peter and all this stuff. And um, Did you guys have to get, like, a worker visa or was it just a tourist visa? Well, okay. 
we <laughs> since we were there such a short time, it was just kind of under the table and just unofficial. Right. Um, and if, if you if we had, we would have got had to get a tourist visa, but a tourist visa to get a year's tourist visa, you have to agree to work eighty eight days on a remote station. Right. So you can. Uh, we would have if we were there long term. We could have done that. Okay. Right. And they have lots of international help there. Um, while we were there, there were 25, 30 people working there. They were all between the ages of 17 and 22, and they were from nine different countries. So, you know, very diverse group of people from all over the place. Yes. That, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. From Argentina to Ireland and Scotland, Canada. Yep. Us. Yeah. Just all over the place. And they had, it was... Um... Okay, so we, we flew over there, and I have to say, that is, if anybody does it, it is very challenging. <laughs> so, 20, 24 hours travel. on an airplane? Um, It was 24 hours of travel, 17 hours yes. in one flight. In one flight, And then yeah. airport time, another flight. Yes. And, all. and then, so we With flew. With tiny little seats and very uncomfortable. Yes, yeah, so we flew into Sydney, and then from Sydney, we flew to Adelaide, and at Adelaide, Peter had one of um, uh, the... One of the custom musterers. Custom musterers, Emma. And drove us 13 hours. Yes. She ranch. Yeah, picked us the, up and drove us 13 so hours to the, the ranch. The, the, the nearest station. airport, 13 hours from the ranch. The nearest, like, commercial airport. Right. When we left, and we'll get <laughs> to that, I guess, but there was an oil field in the middle of nowhere that we flew out on a 737 in the middle of the desert. <laughs> There's not even a town there. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a bizarre country it is so we get there to the station and um, we don't meet peter for a couple days but I re they get us settled in and we they put us in um oh the housing is an old now would be a good time to kind of just give the breakdown <laughs> of what the station is I okay guess. do that so do that four and a half million acres it's all contiguous it's in a country that they get. They say they get about four inches of rain a year, but that can be ten inches one year and nothing for several years. Right. It's very sporadic. There's not like really systemic rain or anything. There's certainly not a wet season or a monsoon nope. season. Just um, random. Just kind of random. Uh, and there's a giant river that runs through it. It's called the Diamantina, and it is one of the most bizarre rivers in the world because there's no channel. There's no riverbed. There's no water in it most of the time, but there's about a, oh, between a two to 20 mile wide strip that has more vegetation and occasionally will just fill up with water from underneath. Right. It doesn't run there. It doesn't run into it. It just wells up from underneath on its way to the big interior lake, Lake Eyre, which is, you know, below sea level. And, um, but on the whole, whole station, there's only about maybe a uh, 80 foot drop from one end to the other in elevation. I mean, it's yes. very flat. Very flattest uh, place I the, think we've ever been. If you get on a little like sand dune, the entire horizon is the curvature of the earth around you. There's, you cannot see mountains in the distance anywhere. It is just sky and the earth curving away from you. I mean, it's flat. So oh Western Kansas without trees. Uh, much flatter than Western Kansas. Oh. I, I was shocked at how much flatter it was than that. Um, it was 80 like 80 feet across four and a half million acres. And I could be off on, a, on that a bit, but it's close to that. There, 
there are some elevated spots like they call them mountains and it's just a, a it'll be 300 feet above sea level instead of 180 feet above sea level and that's considered a mountain in that area and it it's hard to see from a distance because it just kind of blends in but and it's also so you have you know nothing on the horizon and it's also a mirage yeah i mean there is mirage around you morning and afternoon both i mean and what looks like a mountain range when you travel 40 50 miles to get to it when you get there is a 20 foot tall sand dune right or what looks like a grove of giant trees is some 10 15 foot tall acacia trees maybe you know from yes. 20 miles it, it's just <laughs> amazing how that optical illusion works and um it is all throughout the whole area there are place names that are named after early european explorers that died traveling through there from thirst or starvation because they just got lost and couldn't find their way out well and i i have to say <clears throat> i I didn't figure out till a bit later or learn that the sand dunes run north to south. Yeah. So the only really distinguishable yes. landmarks are the sand dunes. And they'll be anywhere from, uh, you know, a quarter mile to a couple miles wide, but they'll run for hundreds of miles north to south. Yes. But uh, when you get just a little further north, they turn and they go east-west. And, <laughs> and okay. you go a little further south and they go southwest to northeast and so if you get if oh. you're using those as your bearings and you get far <laughs> enough all of a sudden your bearings are completely corrupted because the sand dunes change and you don't even realize it so it's, it sounds it's like treacherous country almost sounds like you had an interesting learning experience with navigation by sand dunes oh my gosh yeah. oh my gosh yeah <laughs> and absolutely i don't think i've ever been in an area where the uh, landscape was repetitive so you'd have there just are no landmarks no there's it not all looks the same there's yeah sand dunes stone uh, gibby flats gibby which are flats yeah covered with this smooth shiny red stone polished red stone yeah um that just perfectly flat and it's the oldest and then every once in a while some sand dunes and then gibby flats and yeah. it is one of the oldest surfaces on earth it's like yeah. 4.6 billion years old this the gibby rock has been the yeah. Gibby Rock has been exposed for that long. It's one yeah. of the oldest exposed surfaces on Earth. But it just, it just. So went. it's Gibby Rock is just like volcanic pumice, yeah. but it's been polished, glassy, smooth with time. And <laughs> it was, the Gibby Rock was really interesting because when you drove over it, or Gibby Stones, yeah, when you drove over it or rode over it, it kind of gave a little. And so it just, it had like, so what had it sand spongy. it was spongy and it had kind of sand all around it it was just interesting so yeah that sounds that sounds really strange to drive on oh yeah, it, it was, was bizarre and we drove a lot the the utes the land rovers yeah. and and we also had to ride dirt bikes which i'd never been on a motorcycle my entire life <laughs> ever literally not even a bicycle since i was a teenager right and that was a little terrifying Gwen, please tell me somewhere there's a video of Josh's first time on a dirt I bike. Did there take, is. I did take some videos. Um, I was really bad. At, it took me almost two hours to figure out that you steer by leaning, not just by manhandling <laughs> steering wheels, if that tells you anything. I was a complete idiot on it. So. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. fair. That's but fair. They, Once I figured that out, I was a lot better. <laughs> yes. They yeah. And they sent Josh and I out with... With um, no instruction, by the way. Just, yeah. Here's a Honda 400, hop on it and go do this. Yeah, we had like a two-minute, tor tor 
you know, tutorial. And then we were off for about seven hours on dirt bikes. It was interesting. Moving so. 400 cows, 12 yeah, miles, 12 miles through the desert. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, but, but I guess back to the river, I guess okay. I got distracted there. So the Diamantina is this bizarre river that isn't really a river, but every once in a while it will just flood and they'll have a flood. Like without rain, just water. Without just... rain. And the, the water that's flooding, it comes from 1,500 miles away up in right. the mountains of Queensland and comes, you know, surface water somewhere, but goes under, underground and then just wells up. And so you can literally be driving out there and suddenly surrounded by water, five foot deep water and, and horrible mud. Yeah. And you have no warning. It's not like you knew a flood was coming or anything. It can just flood. Yeah. And so, you know, whole areas will become impassable for an undetermined amount of time. And it just floods. And then as it recedes, there will be water holes that hold water. And then tons of vegetation mm -hmm. that comes roaring up because of the, the moisture. And so one of the big challenges is they're constantly trying to move cattle to where there's been a flood. But you have to move them out of there if there's a flood and then move them back. So they're constantly kind of moving cattle. And the riverlands, there's some areas that are kind of permanently green. And so there are cattle in there that haven't even been, it's so, you can't drive or use a motorcycle, no. only helicopters. And a lot of those cattle are kind of immune to helicopters. They've just figured out yep. they can, the, the helicopter pilots will actually bump them with the tail rotor guard to get them to move out of the brush. And, they'll, and then they'll just move to another piece of brush and stop. Yep. So they're just ungathered. I'm, I'm not sure if that sounds insane or ballsy or suicidal both both and we All actually three. got to go with a helicopter yes. musterer for a day at, just as a that as a gift to us peter yes. arranged it that we got to go with one of the helicopter pilots on a muster like you got to ride with them we the got to be in the helicopter as a four passenger or a three passenger and uh, we went up with him and it was awesome. I mean, we take off and we're flying over the Riverlands. You can see all this country that we'd heard about, but you can't really see because you can't get there. And then see the cattle, wild pigs, camels, kangaroos, uh, dingoes, kangaroos emus, all, I mean, just gorgeous flight. And then we started mustering this paddock, which the paddock was probably, oh, two, three hundred thousand acres. Yes. I mean, big paddock. When you started mustering and he really started flying the machine, how many times a minute did you think you were going to die? Okay, well, <laughs> let me start by saying I did not realize that you could hallucinate from motion sickness. But you can, <laughs> and I did. I got so motion sick. He did, he did. That, And at first I was just loving it. And then all of a sudden it just, I couldn't see, I couldn't hear, I couldn't think or anything. I was just sitting there just trying not to vomit. <laughs> and just waves of nausea. I was so sick, I couldn't even say, please kill me or anything. <laughs> and finally, Gwen recognized that I was about to die. And he was going, he went back to refuel anyway, some, but he made a trip just to get me out of there, thank goodness, and dropped me off. We had been off the helicopter and we had walked back to the headquarters, which was an eighth of a mile away. And I told, I, I finally told Gwen, I've got to get off this helicopter. It's killing me. <laughs> And we'd been off for half an hour and had walked a quarter of a mile at that point, and I did not know it. So it was I was that motion sick. It was okay. hor one of the worst experiences of my life. So let but up to that point, I loved it.
So let since I and he was a master stockman. My goodness, yes, he, he was, was very excellent. Good. When we started, he would just feather in and get cattle going just a little bit, and mm-hmm. then he'd go and get another group, and he'd get whole groups of cattle flowing. And I mean, it was beautiful to watch. I was loving it until I was yeah, but yeah, but, and he did. That's exactly right. So the cattle were just in different. You could just see them different groups and pods, and he literally just like Josh said would fly in get them all moving and they just single file out and they he'd get them all going in the same direction and then he'd he'd touch something else off and then we'd go somewhere else and then he'd circle back and And being able to see that i mean yeah he could just see how they were going to move he could read the terrain yeah i mean he was a masterful stockman he was excellent so he would he would touch off all these cattle that were scattered in all these multiple areas and then as they started grouping up then the custom musters came in with their bikes okay. and then they would get their motorbikes and then they would gather them up to a set of pins is how it worked. And yeah. so, cause. <laughs> and then once they were in the pins, the yards, as they right, call them. The yards. We'd work them, process them, work them. Right. And then when they were taking them from the yards to another pasture or another area, then they would use horses for that. And they right. called it walking them. Walking. And then you'd walk them where they were going uh, for stress, you know. Right. Okay. You, it would have taken days to gather them with horses. I, you just and been very could. difficult. You'd worn yeah. your horses out doing it. Yeah. To do what the helicopters were doing or the motorbikes Motorbikes, were. yeah. But then you can't use the motorbikes or helicopters really to, to walk them because it's too stressful. And, right, because yeah. you're trying to. Yeah. And, and that makes that makes complete yeah. sense. It you was know. a good system. Yeah. When you're on, when you're trying to gather and go to the pens. Yeah, there's some stress level management that you need to be doing, but as soon yeah. as they get in the pens and get in confinement, especially cattle that are in confinement, yeah, once a year, once yeah. every other year, right. like well, Australian cattle are kind of like mine. You know, it, my cows will graze tip to tip, horn tip to horn tip in the pasture, and never have an argument. Yeah, you put them in a pen. Oh boy, and they get real feisty, and I can only yeah. imagine how feisty yeah. those Ooh. cattle would be. So it makes it. And listen to you explain, it makes perfect sense that when we're done, we're going to calmly walk them out with horses. Yeah. Yeah. Because there, there's, and you guys know this, there's such a different relationship between like a person on a foot or a person on a side by side versus oh, yeah. a horse man. Yeah. Yes. Because a person on a horse is something other than a person on a horse. It's like a whole different kind of organism to the cow, right? You're right. It, one one thing I want to back up on, I mean, like we're kind of jumping around, we're kind of, yeah. I feel like we're at the end of the trip, but, <laughs> and we're going to go back to the beginning. Um, Gwen, you, you were using some kind of some terminologies that we hear from Bob Kinford and his stick to migration and grazing, like, you know, touch this group off and set this group up and whatnot. So I'm interested, I mean, Josh was kind of like, he was kind of out of the picture when like the heavy helicopter flying was doing. Oh, yes. <laughs> so from your perspective, was he doing some motions like you would be doing on a horse or like somebody oh. would be doing on foot to get the cattle to move the same way? Yes, and Bob will um, love this, but um, <laughs> the helicopter pilot, he would go in and he would, um, like I said, touch the cattle off and kind of communicate with the cattle. As soon as those cattle did what he wanted, then he'd fade off and he'd just take the pressure off and we'd just veer to the left or veer to the right or go up or, but we'd just be gone and those cattle would be moving. And then he'd 
kind of circle back around just to make sure they were doing what he wanted. And he'd put a little more pressure on it, and then we'd just be gone. Just you bump know. the back. He you just, know. and he actually, the side he actually came in from the side more than he did the back. Just like just Bob. Like do. Yeah. Yeah. And, or more um, like a rear quarter. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it was interesting. And, um, um, and, and I got to say with the motorbikes and stuff too, you know, I had, I think I was 12 the last time I was on a motorbike <laughs> and, you know, I was like, well, you know, maybe I can do some kind of IMG. And so I would use my motorbike and I would strip the sides on those cows while, while they were moving or walking or whatever. But it was so hard. You could do that. You could strip the sides and push from the back or whatever you needed to do. But you just didn't have that ability to come into them at the right angle and then get off quickly. I wasn't a good enough bike you rider to do one it. One of the big things, you can't back up. Well, yeah. that's just and the other And on a horse thing. or foot, you're constantly backing up and to, to draw and to pull draw. pressure off. And you just can't do that on a motorcycle So there was. So I found the motorcycle. I mean, it was the novelty kind of wore, wore off after about the fourth hour. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you didn't and, have. And the fourth time we dumped ourselves in the yes, sand dunes. Yes, yes. Yeah. But you didn't have the draw, and it was hard to fade off of them quickly, and just and you can't I, reward them with that release. No, nah, you can't. You can and I also, and here's something else, and people don't even think about this when they're using ATVs, or maybe they do. I don't know, but it's also the sound. Yes. So the motorcycle, you just had this, you know, engine just, and it was just constant. And I, I feel like it disrupts and disturb, disturbs movement. It distracts. It bothers the cattle. And even if you aren't being aggressive, you're just there all the time. And it, it I don't know. It's just, it's, it's kind of, I, I don't enjoy it. And so a lot of times on that big whatever ride, I would just get to a spot and I'd shut my bike off and just let the cattle drift on by because I wasn't doing that much anyways, and I'd kind of do a bunch of stretching. <laughs> then <laughs> then I'd get back on my bike and go again. So Go yeah. look for Josh. Hope yeah. he pick all the needles out of his pants. That's <laughs> right. That's right. But um, it was interesting because you still could do, you know, stockmanship and do different moves, but it just wasn't as precise, and you just didn't have, you Not didn't have advanced. much, you didn't yeah. have much feel. So there you go. Yeah. But that, that's one thing that it, I find myself doing a lot when I'm working out of a side-by-side -side or right. out of my rocks or with cows is the reverse. I mean, yes, is the reverse because that's so useful, like you said, as a reward, as a pressure removal. Like as soon as they start going the direction you want, get some of that pressure yeah. off yeah. just to let them know, hey, that's the right way. Yeah. And if like if you're on a dirt bike and you're pointed the wrong way, in order to release pressure, you have to give them more sometimes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it just. Yeah, it, you have to kind of bend into them before you can get off of them. Yeah. It's frustrating. It is. For them and us. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. But um, also, and we had, so another really interesting thing was we ha had all different types and classes of cattle when we were moving so you had cows, calves, bulls, um, yearlings, five-year-old steers. steers yeah. I mean, it was it was wild. Some of which probably hadn't been 
I mean, there were some cattle in there that hadn't been gathered since they were baby calves and were. I agree. Um, steers that were, you know, seven, eight years old that yeah. hadn't seen a human in that time. And there were some cows, aged cows that didn't even have a brand. Right. That had probably never been in a set of pens before. Well, and you also and had... They were pretty stressed. They were. And then you also had different types of cattle. So we had um, Brahmas. We had um, Shorthorns. Dutch Belted. Dutch Belted. Um, uh, Black Angus. Red Angus. Yeah. And Santa Gertrudis? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, I bet. You know, the I, Kidmans brought Santa Gertrudis from and from the King Ranch. They were they, beautiful. I was gonna say they gorgeous. probably do pretty well oh, there. They did. They, they were did, great. They were gorgeous, Just fat and healthy, and and so you have and the, so the Dutch belted were the biggest shock. Yes, and some Highlander genetics too. And but, Highlanders, yeah. Would yeah. they get too hot? It was kind of like the Mustangs out west. Is just I think a lot of cattle there were um, what just kind of released or abandoned at some point. And just kind of ended up yeah. mixing. But um, the Highlanders, actually, that hair insulates. Yeah. It'll be cooler than black-hided Angus cows. Yeah. A Highlander with long hair will be cooler because they have a little insulation. Did you see a lot of black Angus cows down there? Um, Quite a some, bit, but um, not like here. It's, no. You know, maybe 20%, 25% were black Angus. Yeah, it was, just, it was just kind of a mix of everything. I yeah. mean, every Whatever color. Whatever survived. I mean, it yeah. was purely survival of the fittest. It was. They don't give any antibiotics. They don't no. do any intervention. It, this was this operation was completely organic and natural. Yes. And they were just selling organic beef off of it. So they were, once you gathered an area, you sorted all the aged steers, dry cows, old bulls, anything that needed to leave. Um, and we, when we were there, they were sorting off very, you know, fat areas where they yes. sent cattle to get fattened okay. and so working baby pairs and turning them out, weaning wiener calves and turning their pregnant mothers out, yeah. but then sorting and shipping to be sent down to Melbourne for processing as organic. Yeah. So beef. That was their business model. Crown Point, uh, properties is the or past crown point pastoral, pastoral yeah. is the name of the company that owns clifton hills and 20 some other stations yes. in australia they own millions and millions and millions of acres it's two australian families that kind of joined forces i think one was kind of a station family and one was kind of a farming family yeah and they've just joined forces to um, kind of compete with the chinese and other big buyers on property and they've bought up a lot of stations over the last decade or so yeah and Clifton Hills is one of the biggest. I I know you guys probably can't speak on this, and I want to throw this out there for the other listeners because hopefully this reaches somebody in Australia. Yeah. I'd really love to know and have a conversation about what land ownership and property rights yeah. are like in Australia and how much control and influence the government exerts, like on your friend Peter, the you know, it manages a 4.4 million acre station. I know it's not nothing. Yeah. But, and I, I guess, I, I, speaking broadly, the few contacts that I have in Australia, they'll tell me things privately, that, but when I say, hey, can we do a podcast about that? They're like, uh, well... No, because of where I'm employed and there's really strict laws that I can't say anything yeah. against my employer or I'll go to jail. But let me see if I can find you somebody that's, <laughs> yeah. that can talk. So we're, I'm, I'm still looking for that person. I mean, and it's not like I want, I, I don't want to go out and demonize the Australian mm -hmm. government. I just, 
I'm really genuinely curious yeah. about what land ownership and property rights are like in respect to agriculture. And we don't have much clearer idea having no, been there. No, we um, don't. It is a strange mix of socialism and capitalism. I mean, they are for-profit companies that are producing beef and, and doing this, but they're subsidized in some pretty interesting ways. Like they seem to have travel subsidies where they provide travel for the people working out there. You know, the visa program, they call them backpackers. They're, these kids, if they want a visa to backpack around Australia, they have to work on a station for eight, yes. eight days. Um, the uh, native Australian kids seem to go work out there for a year or two in order to get like trade school paid for or college uni paid for or whatever. Um, so, you know, there's a, and they, they have health care. Yes. Um, you know, they get travel vouchers for to go get health care if they're yep. in remote areas. So it, it, those are some interesting things that are just, helpful. You, I, I'm sorry, I got to stop you. Like, uh -huh. You just hit something real interesting. That the Australian government sees a labor deficiency yeah. in agriculture yes. in the interior. Yeah. Yeah. And they're giving social benefits to the people that come out and solve yeah. that labor need even temporarily. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great system. I mean, when we were the best part of the trip, and we oh. loved the trip, obviously, but uh, yep. was they call it mateship or camaraderie. Yes. My goodness, we were a little tribe of people in the middle of nowhere working, desperately working to make this, this station yeah. function. Some of the people there, one couple were from Argentina, from uh, Buenos Aires, had never been out of a city in their lives, <laughs> dumped out here in the middle of nowhere. Oh. The wife, you know, was not, was terrified of leaving a building, but she cleaned everything and helped everybody. She was so helpful. And her husband, he just started... Well, helping with the cowboying, helping hauling trash, driving tractors. He'd never done anything like that, but it, everybody working towards the same thing. And it was just, it was wonderful. That mateship was just amazing. It was well, so fun. And what a, what an experience for all those young people that to be yeah. exposed to agriculture. And, and people from nine different countries that's at right. that point. I that's mean, right. the cook at the, at the station while we were there, and this was just pure chance had worked in in Michelin-starred restaurants. He was oh, Danish, yeah. and he'd just come to Australia for a tourist visa, and he was working his 88 days, and he came out to work on the ran on the you know cattle part, but they needed a cook, and every meal we had there was a Michelin-starred meal. It was It was wonderful. amazing food. He <laughs> and, did amazing things and with his, everything. His name was Maddie, and he was... Oh. Just a hoot. Too. Yeah, he was fun. so fun. Yeah. And everybody was and so the the day we got helpful. there, we, we're you're right, we were kind of scattered and just around. Sorry, yeah. The day we got there, they took us out to shoot a steer, a big great big yes. old aged steer, and butcher it in the field. Yeah. And that's what we ate the whole time we were there. They they shot a steer every week to feed the crew. Yeah. And right. when new people showed up, they shot a steer to kind of test you to see how you reacted to it. Well, we butcher our own, so it was I was able to butcher and you know, didn't bother us at all. Yes. That's the day one stress test. That's the day one stress it, test. It was. Yeah. It and was. It weeds a lot of people out. There's a, it can't handle it. But, yeah. And yeah. one kid was there for a short time, just a few days, and he went back home. He just did, you know, didn't fit or right. something. And because you know, it, several people left while we were there, just as, a short time. As Josh said, it was one of the most physically demanding places and jobs that we have been on, and. Yeah. I mean, it just explain that. I mean, 
Um, cowboying's cowboying. Yes. But, it is. Okay, we'll just, I'll just give a, an example of two days that we were there early on. When we first got there, Peter was gone at another property for Crown Point doing stuff. Nobody quite knew what to do with us. Uh, Kristen, the, the friend we went with, yes. um, has some videos online of her riding ranch bronc. Uh, so for poor Kristen got oh my uh, sorted off and went with some custom musterers with four unstarted Brumby colts. Oh. And she had to spend the first four days starting those colts. Um, they were rank. I wouldn't, I, and they looked at us. I was like, I don't start my own. No, thank you. <laughs> we're not doing that. And Kristen is, uh, she's a badass. I mean, she absolutely is badass, a badass and tough as hell. And she stuck it out and she oh, got those she things did. saddled and, and going great. I mean, and she got her head pawed, a big gash in her head. Oh, they my They were rough, rough rank horses. They were. But Gwen and I got sent off with Dish and his son, um, William. William. Was and Dish short for dishwater no dish was the old man of the station they thought he was just older and than he, dirt a gray beard an he, aboriginal. aboriginal he had a huge walrus mustache that was gray and he was very proud of being an old gray beard the old man he was younger than us yes by several years <laughs> he was I, very disappointed when he found out that we were older than him i i was thinking <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> but we rode around with that's who we went uh, did the dirt biking with and helped him move cattle from water to water and checked water and run pipeline running pipeline is one of the main jobs of course you just have to check water all the time yes so we would literally drive 200 250 miles Get there, unload bikes, do something, check water, move cattle. Fix fence. Fix fence, all these things. And then load bikes back up and drive back to the station, you know, in a day. I mean, you're traveling 400 miles in a day to work. It was on rough roads and in cramped conditions. It was rough. Break that down for me. How many hours on the road for how many hours of work? Oh, gosh. Um, wait. I bet we traveled five hours in the morning, five hours going nah. home. Well, three to five hours. It depends. It varied a lot. You know, you just never knew where you were going or what you were doing. But some days we traveled five, four or five hours. We did. To get where we were going, four or five hours back and, you know, six to eight hours doing stuff. They tried to get back before dark whenever possible yeah. just because it's dangerous. And no communications, no no cell phone, of course. Uh, the radios only worked you know for a couple miles so if you broke down people just had to notice and realize you weren't back yet mm -hmm. hey, and nobody, then go looking for you nobody's seen josh for about three days <laughs> yeah it, that's it yeah and they did check in but, all the time so that was the first few days we're there yes and we weren't really taken seriously yet because yes. we're just people that had shown up they didn't know if we were really well and they what we were and, and peter wasn't there well yet. and because we were so old they were just like yeah, they Why? didn't want us to die because we were <laughs> 30 <laughs> years older than anyone else there, well, 20 years older than the manager, I mean, and, and, they, and four or five years older than the old man. You know? And they so, kept saying, Why are you guys here? Yeah, why? why are you here? You're, you're crazy. <laughs> and you're probably like, Well, this is our vacation. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we were like, but, Yeah. So fine, Peter gets there, we meet him and visit, and he kind of really, Oh, these, they're, they're competent. We'll send them to do something. So he sent us to go day work at a neighboring station. Yes. Which is a four-mile or four-hour drive to get yeah. to, of course, at least. And uh, we load up horses. We load up our stuff. And, and we, one of the girls that was working there went, had been to that station before. And we're supposed to be there four days. Yeah. 
So we head down to Mungarani is the name of Mungarani. this station. And Mungarani is only like two and a half million acres, tiny little place. And, just a shoebox. Uh, just a little place, you know. And we get there, and it's totally different than Clifton Hills. Clifton Hills is just chaos kind of contained. It is. With lots uh, of people and lots of people, lots of activity, pretty rough conditions. Yes. Uh, the water smelled of horrible rotten eggs. Yeah. Everything was, it was just pretty rough living. Uh, where we were staying in Clifton Hills was an old cargo container that was divided in for an oil field yes. bunkhouse okay. into little five by eight rooms with the bed bolted to the floor. And we had an air conditioner. All of us in separate rooms. It did have air conditioners and um, gaps in the doors about two, three inches wide so that the brown snakes could come in and, and get warm by bedding with you. I, I stuffed Hold dirty. Up. I stuffed dirty clothes around my door every night. I mean, in. it freaked me and out. And they did have a flock of guineas for snakes. Yeah. But it wasn't very reassuring because the guineas, all through the night, every 20 oh. minutes to an hour, you'd hear, <laughs> guineas killing a snake. Well, that's just what guineas do. Man. It is what <laughs> guineas do. But they were, if they went off, they were killing a snake. They were excellent snakers. But, yes. but anyway, so Clifton Hill's pretty rough, wild, chaotic. It was. But fun. We get to Mungarani, I mean, immaculate. It was. Everything just immaculate. Everything really nice yes. and organized and everything. The people were pretty standoffish. They're like, why do we have these weird American, old Americans I know. being thrust upon us? Oh, gee, oh. thanks, Peter, for sending us good help. And so, we, but very nice. But you, know, very you can just nice. tell they were like, oh, oh God, gosh, exhausting. And so we get there, we eat supper with them. We leave at four o'clock in the next morning. And they haul us over 100 miles to where we were going, or haul us and our horses. There are 750 head of cows and calves gathered up in a trap that they gathered with helicopters for about a week. They've and, been gathering them for about a week. And dirt bikes, yeah. And How bikes. big is the trap? The trap, tiny. 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 Uh, maybe an acre square. Okay. And just wire. Four wire, barbed wire trap. And those cattle, wild-ass cattle are standing in there and respecting. Because they never see fence otherwise. You know, it's a novel experience for them. But um, so we get there, we take them out, uh, cattle, we try to take them to water. The cattle aren't interested in that. They just want to run off. And we start moving these cattle. And we're taking them on the map. It's 26 uh, kilometers, right, from the trap to the to the trap, new water and trap we're taking them to. It's like. 18 miles? 18 miles, I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, on the map, it's that. Yeah. I had my GPS tracker. We, we rode over 50 miles that uh -huh. day, uh, you know, moving the cattle and all. But um, the... Tell, and how many people? There was eight of us. There were eight of us there. Uh, two of them, Dutch kids, like yes. 17, 18-year-old Dutch kids, a brother and sister, that the Dutch boy was crying halfway through the day. From pain of writing and oh. stuff, and he, you know, knew nothing. One of the one of the other girls was probably eighteen years old, um, kind of a horse girl, somebody who'd done a lot of you know dressage things very, like that. Very, very nice, but didn't know a thing about it. Very nice people. And then the cow boss on that operation was in his mid twenties, and yep, and very inexperienced. I'm a nice guy and hard worker, and all, sure. but just didn't know much. And then one really handy woman, that, yes, that uh, really knew her business, yes. But um, we we start moving them through sand dunes and Gibby Rock. The, the Dutch girl and the, the Australian girl are up front constantly turning cattle back on us 
we found out later it's because they were watching the Kardashians the one, on the their one phone. Was, the one was. Downloaded episodes of the Kardashians. <laughs> Not the most experienced people leading uh. this group. But we, we travel, we, by chance, there's one of those water holes where water just kind of risen up. And so we water them about halfway. And we rode past, about noon, we rode past a trap. I thought, man, that'd be a good place to stop. But we went right on by it. And we ended up about eight o'clock that night in the dark. Oh my gosh. Finally trying to pin them in the pins we were going to. Come to find out we were supposed to stop at the other trap, but we'd gotten there so much earlier than they were expecting to. They just kept going. But then, so anyway, we got to move that whole distance in one day. The next, and then we, they truck us back to the headquarters. We eat supper. Everybody's real friendly at that point because they know we're actually helpful. <laughs> they've they've and seen confident. Me. Yeah. And have a very good time there. And um, we even went to the pub. There's a pub near Birdsville Track Pub, I guess. Or, or, or no, his the Mungarani pub there. But we went to the pub and stuff. But um, the next day we leave before daylight again. We get there. We work the cattle that we'd put in the pens. So 750 head through the chutes, uh, kind of a calf cradle thing and a chute. Well, and all I, on foot. On foot, yes. Excellent so, pens. The pens, <clears throat> the government, you know, mandated vaccinations for tuberculosis. And they came in and with old railroad rail, they had built pins, and these pins were built 30 years ago. They st- every door, every gate, latches, everything. I mean, they're excellent pins, well designed. And they and actually, functional. I surprising they to us, they them. flow really very nice. Pins, they're yeah. really nice. Okay. But but um, we worked all all the calves, ran all the cows through, pregged all of them, and and sorted then they sorted them up. They hauled some off and kicked them out. We got all that done in two days. It was supposed to take four days. So. So was, was like it pretty this. standard stuff in the corrals, like the same kind of stuff we do here with like vaccination, preg check, kind of same procedures? Um, on Mungarani, they were giving some shots. On Clifton Hills, they don't because it's all right. uh, uh, organic. Um, but they gave some shots, vaccination, ear tags. They have, you know, I, mandatory ID tags, electronic tags, um, branding and castration. And uh, the calf cradle system was really... Bizarre. Seemed bizarre and unnecessarily difficult, but um, it was like half a cradle, so it just caught the front end, and there's a gap between the run-up to it and the cradle, so the calf, you just have to kind of shoo the calf to run into it, and then you just stab it in there and try to catch them and pull them over on a truck tire, and everybody bails on top and raffles and so. It take It is a young person's job. It is. It is. It, is. it definitely is, but. But, there, are they like just totally against rope and drag, or is that they don't rope at all? Really, they don't just don't have that culture. They have an event for rodeo stuff called Bronco branding, and they used to they used to rope all their calves, and they have this setup where it's like two posts with poles running up to them. So you head a calf, and then you just ride towards that. Your rope slips over and slips between the posts. Pull it up snug against the posts, and then they work the calf standing there, mm-hmm. or they can you know, put ropes on the hind feet and lay it down. But they don't really do that anymore outside of rodeo. Right. I'm I'm wondering if that was a thing that was like government mandated or if it was just a skills erosion thing that you know, like the Yeah. The skills erosion, I mean, roping is a perishable skill like yeah. shooting like a lot of other things. And if you don't practice it and keep it sharp, it goes away. And if that's not a really big part of your culture, then you know, those skills eventually start to fade. and um, Actually, uh, Peter said that most of that went away when the government built all those pens. And I mean... When they mandated yeah. the, the uh, vaccination for tuberculosis, they then 
they build the pin. And, and, the, those, so, and there, there you go. There's that weird socialism, uh, capitalism thing. It's for-profit business, but the government, okay, we're putting this burden on you. We're going to help you fix the burden. But I mean, and the pins, there were those pins, and they were almost identical everywhere we went. I mean, they were set up the same and they were same quality and everything and functioned the same. And they were just, they were spectacular. They yeah. were. And I have to say. Although the octagon of death was not my favorite. <laughs> well, I, I just hold on. I got, so I got to say a few things. We did kind of baffle Josh and I that. So it, this was kind of an interesting thing. So you had cattle that were helicoptered and biked into those pens. And they were very stressed. And they, the handling of them was not wild or anything like that. But you just had cattle that either had, A, never seen people in their lives or had only a couple times. And then they had all this stress. And so then we were really, I mean, it was dangerous because you were on foot with 1,500-pound Brahma cows that hunted you in those pens. And mm -hmm. I mean, it was constant. And all of us, everybody, was we were climbing the fence constantly. It just was part you, of it. Yeah. Several times, you'd be holding a gate, standing at a gate, and suddenly feel something on your back, and it'd be a great big old cow that was just, like, trying to figure out what you were. Or snuffing at but you. But there were some that, and then some that were just, running at yeah, you and stuff like that. some would just creep up and just like sniff at you and stuff, trying to figure it out. But what Josh was talking about, so how they sorted, and this was, it was fascinating. Josh and I didn't get in it, get in it because you had to move really fast and you were on the fence we jumping. We didn't have the knees for the octagon. We did not. So they brought them into, <laughs> they had an alleyway leading up to literally. Everything fed into, into this, this alley. Into this octagon, and this octagon had five or six gates in it. And then there was like one or two poles in it and you had one or two people inside there running those gates by hand, and they'd hide behind those poles, and the cows would go counterclockwise or clockwise, and you'd let them out different gates, whatever you got hollered at. I mean, and it was, it was chaos. It was wild. And they have, they all of them had kind of a crow's nest up above the octagon where you could run it with levers, but no one. We uh, would, didn't see that done once. No. Time. I, I was, you're sitting here describing it, I'm thinking, what lunatic would be in there trying oh, to run the gates? I would be on a catwalk yeah, above. The 88-day backpacker kids. That's Actually, who, they okay. were. The, the cannon fodder. They were. They were down in and, there. Kristen, and their friend Kristen. Kristen was in there <laughs> a lot. Oh, my gosh. She kept asking Josh and I, and we're like, nope, we're good. Like, we're no, good. My niece. But it was, I mean, it was, it was really interesting, you know. So, and you just... And especially how cattle that haven't been handled very much, and then you're on foot in the middle of them, asking them to do stuff and putting more pressure on them and just reactions. I, it was a fascinating look and at cattle. You know, in that some way. Thing, Respect. And it was a pretty good system, but there were some big holes in it that we kind of noticed. Like if they missed a sort or yes. lost one through a shoot and it went back into a pen. They would bring the entire pin full of cattle rather yes. than sorting that one back out like we would with a horse right. or even on foot. They would bring the entire pin full of cattle back through that whole system to of the octagon. Them, to sort it and out. they would all get sorted again to get that one animal. So, you know, one time I counted the same group got sorted through there 10 times yeah. in a day. That would have driven me nuts. That is a lot of stress. That, that would have just driven when... Oh. 
the third time they bring the same group oh, back, I would probably painful. have to walk away. And a couple times we were like, well, he's right here. We can just walk him back. And they're like, oh, we'll just bring him. And it's like, okay. And it's just, not our deal, you bet. And it's just kind of how they did stuff. Yeah. And so. And let me say, they were excellent at it. They were. Like the, the custom were. musterers that were working there at Clifton Hills. They were Hills, excellent. Um, Kane and Emma, Emma the uh, Bumblebread custom mustering. Oh, they, they were excellent. My God, they were bad. Kane was one of the most physically talented, bravest, oh, badass human beings I've ever met. He He's was. He's a Golden Gloves boxer. He was, I mean, yes. he could do anything. Horseback, motorcycle. It was, wow. He and, was cool. But, yeah, I mean, and there was another. But I'm not near tough enough to keep up even just watching no (laughs) no none of us were (laughs) but um yeah it was just kind of a fascinating such an interesting deal because you know you just I just kind of floored us that so you do all these steps you know bringing them in and this and that and that the you know one of the most dangerous things in the pen when they're just not used to it and you're just on foot so but that's horses tied to the fence yeah but that's just how you did it you know so I mean, it's, it's it's really interesting to hear like how different the stockmanship culture is and how, yeah. you know, that that's what they do. Like you leave the horses tied and you do everything and put on the pins. That's yeah. kind of a little foreign, mm-hmm. um, kind of a little foreign. So what was the, I guess, what was, was there anything that you looked at and were like, oh, that looks like home? Or this feels like home, or was everything not a thing? So everything it was, was just foreign and weird. Every, well, I tell you what, it just the landscape. I just it was just so I don't know how to explain it. It was so monotonous. You know, usually you go places and it's yeah, not to, gorgeous. It's not to say it wasn't beautiful. There and, were beautiful spots. There like were on the river and stuff like that. There. Gorgeous, area. but it was just it was just so foreign looking, and then just and also the kind of um, uh, mechanical use of copters and bikes and everything. It just, but because because of the big space, you know, they had to do that. So it, it wasn't. It just, I, yeah, it felt it really. Did not feel like home. It did not. Now the camaraderie. So like, very much so. Um, you know, when you have a cowboy crew and neighbors that you like and you work with and all and that feeling, you know, the branding day, you know, where everybody's yeah. together having it's a good time. It's a bit tribal and it stuff. Was, yeah. It was a lot of that. There was more of that there than other places. I agree. I think. I uh, agree. You know, when we go to Nevada to work on the Sea Punch in the falls. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, we have a little tribe there that we all work together and we're all hunting cattle. And it's, and, it's and awesome. All that. And I love that it. That camaraderie is, is, was the home feeling there. It felt very much like home. And it, it took us a little bit. And for them to, and everybody was well, super, well, hold on. So everybody was super nice to us and everything. But to kind of bring us into that camaraderie, it took them a little bit. And I don't know if we were worth even well, investing in, I so, think. What I kind of, Josh and I talked about this quite a bit, but part of it is it's such a harsh environment and you're physically working hard all the time. And so I think a lot of times they just don't have the bandwidth to put forth until you actually prove yourself. Does that make sense? I mean, they just, yeah, yeah, they just, that's just kind of how it is. When we came back from Mungarani, Jess, the kind of top hand from down there brought us back because the truck. The Clifton Hills vehicle, uh, trailer we'd taken down was broken, so she brought us back with that. 
and uh, she kind of vouched for us then that hey they're they're okay and they then, helped us they didn't make things worse they made it and better. then everything and changed. then after that every, well and we also brought beer back with us well, yeah. <laughs> that helped too <laughs> so we had a drink up and had a wild time with oh my gosh it's so fun yeah and you know we just don't drink much and i certainly hadn't drunk like that for <laughs> damn near 30 years i know and um it was rough well, it was, it was I drank it, about four gallons of water trying to recuperate. But um, but we ended up roping each other, and that, it was just wild. Time. It was really fun. But then the next day, of course, we were up at 530 because yeah. we had to go work, and they asked us to help work cattle. Yeah, yeah. But we, so were, the, we were in the club at that we point. We were in the okay. club. Like, you know. I it just, you know, the mustering crew asked us to, you know, said we were helping that day. And so it just, I, it's just interesting. So It was a great time. It was. I. And quite an experience, and um, yeah, it was. Yeah, and, you know, so fun for Kristen, Josh, and I to go there. And um, I, actually, we became better friends with Kristen through yeah, the, through, I, through the yeah. whole thing. It Traveling was, like that in extreme circumstances oh my gosh. can end friendships sometimes, but we actually became better we friends. We became from, better friends. And, and I guess yeah. one other thing I want to point out, they are three, four generations closer to their Wild West than we are. So okay. our Wild West is, you know, the 1880s is kind of the heyday of the trail driving days. Yeah. Peter Nunn's father drove huge herds, 40,000, 50,000 head of cattle for hundreds of miles in the 70s and 80s still. Okay. Peter actually grew up dr doing droves of, you know, tens of thousands of cattle. Yeah. Um, they still, on... On Clifton, Clifton Hills, Hills they still yeah. drive five, ten thousand head of cattle, hundreds of miles to get them from one part of the, mm -hmm. the from one part of the ranch to the yeah. other part. Yeah, drive so, cattle I mean, hundreds of miles to another pasture. And yeah, and Peter's father, who's still alive, was part of those wild days where I mean, it was wild west in Australia back in the because their wild west was, you know, still going in the nineteen fifties and sixties, seventies even. So, you know, it was different. You know, we were we were kind of swapping stories in the evenings with Peter and some of the crew, Rory and, yes. and Kane. And um, their stories were one generation away. They they were living memory stories of people, you know, camping out mm -hmm. and, and tracking horse thieves and all this stuff in the, in the 1960s and 70s. That was just amazing to me to be hearing firsthand, you know, generational stories like that. And here we're so far removed it's you know it's mythical here our it is, mythical west it is, is now is strong but but there it's it's still living memory mm -hmm. as interesting to see that is interesting and I, I guess i never really stopped think about the time frame across you know how australia was settled and, yeah. and well developed i guess and when you think about it, it's probably a pretty similar pattern to, to the way this continent was settled. A whole bunch of people on this coast, get a few yeah. people on this coast, and, and eventually yeah. maybe a few people will kind of trickle into the middle and see what's there. Exactly. So so I want to add a few more things. So one of the questions Josh and I always had, and that's when we went to Clifton Hills or with Peter or Mongraney, we asked, what do the cattle eat? <laughs> and what's the yeah yeah and it, it was shocking how little knowledge most of the people there right had. you know peter and and jess some of those people they do of course because 
their right. professionals, but most of the people had no idea about it. But what was fascinating? But, yeah, tell the reason why. Well, there are no yes. native uh, uh, migratory uh, grazers. Grazers there. They they're are browsers, kangaroos and wombats. Okay. And there used to be giant wombats, but there are no native migratory ruminants there. Like here, cows are a surrogate replacement for bison, right? And elk and antelope and everything else but there there's not and so when sheep and cattle were introduced yes. in the 1900s they wiped out all the palatable plants we the don't natives. even know what plants went okay. extinct there. right and they introduced a lot of plants to try to my god they introduced mesquite and acacia yeah. trees which oh, that's purpose. A wonderful idea oh boy now it is dry enough; they don't do well there. <laughs> but but Josh and I were shocked to see them there. We were just yeah, like, and "What the all hell?" All kinds of species that had been introduced. Yeah. But really, the only things that survived were things that weren't palatable to sheep and cattle. Yeah. And um, so, you know, none of the native plants were tolerant of grazing at all, hardly. Yeah. And so uh, nobody knows what was lost, really. Yeah. In those areas, and and the. The native stuff that has survived generally isn't really bothered by them. Well, and, and I have to say, just so when we were motorbiking or driving or riding horseback, most of the plants were vicious. I mean, they had spikes, thorns, you know, it was... Pungent odors. Pungent odors, of, you know, yeah, all kinds repellent. of stuff. They were not friendly and or palatable. They, so. It is a place where the cattle will literally eat rock. Yes. To survive. Dish told us this. They, you watch them, they'll pick up rocks with lichens on them and just mouth them and chew them and suck on them and suck the lichens off the rock. Yeah. That okay. is one of their sources of nutrition. I mean, you're in country where they literally are chewing on rocks to survive. That, that's pretty tough country. Well, and so the other part of this, which, okay, so one of the most shocking things to me, and I had no idea, was the flies. All right? Oh, <laughs> and I... I, I I have to talk about it because it was Misery. it was insane. And this was, we were there, of course, near the end of winter, and the flies weren't even bad yet. And yeah, it wasn't fly season. No, it wasn't fly season. But there was thousands of them that would congregate on your face, your eyes. They tried to get uh, moisture. They didn't bite. They'd be yeah, crawling, crawling up your nose, lips, your ears, eyes, everything. Yeah. Constantly. Blow 30 of them out of each nostril every once in a while. It was you know, horrible. Just, oh, I'm and never I mean, going to Australia. Oh, yeah. Well, if you do, you need a fly mask. Yeah. yeah. But it was it was just well, constant. And, you know, flies aren't native to Australia. That's the other thing. Okay. And okay. William told us, you know, the Aborigines. Yes. They were literally sitting there in the late 1800s, had never experienced a fly, and, like, the next day, their entire life was misery, hell on earth, of being inundated with flies crawling in their From eyes, sheep nose, and, and ears cattle. constantly. From sheep and cattle. As sheep and cattle moved through the country. Yeah. And just what a cultural change that was for them. It just, it was just, they went from, from idyllic conditions almost to just being tormented by these, these bugs that they had no control over. And can you imagine that? Your world changing that much from a little insect like that just appearing out of nowhere. It'd be horrible. And, I have to say on that, the 50-mile ride or whatever drive that we were on with the 800 head of cattle, the flies were so bad. Uh -huh. I mean, I found that halfway through the ride, so 25 miles into it, 
I was so numb to it that I didn't even, it, you just rode along and you were just covered. Just let them cover you. You just let them cover you. Because it just, it never quit. And your that horse was horrible. Your, it was. I'd look down at my legs and my jeans were black from flies. Yeah. And it didn't matter what you did. You were just, they were just hanging on. I cut a switch off of he a, did. He like did. a salt cedar tree and just did that because I just could not. I, and I woke up that night doing this, yeah. <laughs> dreaming that I had flies in my nose. And actually, Chris, we all three woke up that night. Yes. Swatting flies off our faces I, I in did. our sleep. Chris and Josh and I all dreamt of flies for several nights. You just yeah. couldn't. You couldn't. It was so. It was torment. It was so. And I, Kristen wrote up to me one time and she is like, I think this is the definition of insanity. And I'm like, I think it is too. I mean, it was nuts. So it yeah. didn't bother them much. No, they're no, used to they're it. used to it. Yeah, but it was wild. That's yeah. That's interesting. I, I, you can't look at Australia on TV anything without some that you can't talk about Australia on TV for five minutes without mentioning the flies, flies or yeah. seeing somebody covered in flies. Oh yeah. So that's yeah. I, well, I was wanting to know about that, and yeah, when, you know, in, until we got to that point, I'm kind of like, that doesn't sound like too bad of a place to yeah. take a vacation. And that was one day was really bad. Well, and most days working cattle there was pretty bad, it, it, and it was getting worse every day we were was, there because the fly was. season was coming. And that's but when we left, so we left Rory, a Scotsman who'd been working there for a few years, yes. just really fun. He guy. was wonderful. He's going to come visit us. Um, he drove us to this airstrip in the middle of an oil field oh yeah in the middle of there's not even a town on the map nothing on the map and yet there's an oil field with tens of thousands of workers that come and go it was and a full-blown air airport and airstrip with 737s taking off landing and <clears throat> we get on and we were joking when we rory brought us there and we were joking as he was dropping us off i was like oh we can get away from the flies now he said oh no there will be flies on these planes and there were. <laughs> you won't be away from the flies till you're in the Adelaide airport. And oh, there man. were. There were flies on the fucking airplane. It was horrible. <laughs> we're like, no. Yeah. That would be the worst thing ever. <laughs> yeah. It was rough. It was. But what, you know, I just, what an experience. So, you know, I it's so fascinating to see how, other people do stuff. Yeah. And it's also fascinating to get out of your comfort zone, even though we're in the ranching business and, you know, stockmanship and all that, it's still, you're thrown out of your comfort zone into something that people have no idea what your skills are. Yeah. And it makes you step up. It makes you really listen and learn and adapt and adjust. And I think that is so good for a person to do that. Mm -hmm. So. And in an environment like that, where you're not just, you know, a fish out of water, you're not right. just totally away from everything that's familiar. Right. You're in the middle of freaking nowhere. Yeah. Yes. And that psychologically, you know, to oh. a small group that's like, here you, here you are, mm -hmm. you guys are here for two weeks. This is the work. Let's get it done. Nobody goes home. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. you're not going home. It's not like you can just screw off and walk to the 7-Eleven yeah. down on the right. corner and no. get a case of beer and sit down on the mm -hmm. curb and have a break. 
it doesn't sound like you could really do that no. at, at Clifton Hills. No, like, absolutely not. Oh, no. <laughs> no. And I mean, if we were, you were there. You, Yeah, you worked from 6 a.m. to, what was it, dark? Dark, yeah. Yeah. And, but, my goodness, they, they fed you breakfast. They fed you um, yeah. smoko, which is a mid-morning snack. Lunch and smoko, which is a mid-afternoon snack <laughs> and supper. And all the excellent food. And, and you oh, know, yeah. if you're going to be gone all day, you packed. You know, they, oh, the yeah. cook made sure you packed whatever food and drinks you wanted. You're responsible for your own water, your own food, everything. But yeah. um, they took very good care of you as far as that went. And uh, they were concerned about everybody. But then again, you were on your own. If you got hurt, you got hurt. And best case scenario, you're 13 hours from an emergency room. Yeah. Best case scenario. That's if a flying doctor is able to land and there's a helicopter close and they're able to take you to an airstrip and get you back on and fly mm -hmm. back. 13 hours, absolute best case. Best case scenario. Best case. 24 hours is a lot more likely. And that's it from the time they find you, by the right. way, too, you know. Right. That's, yeah. I'm just thinking of the first aid kit that I, you know, first aid slash trauma kit that yeah. I have in, have in my rocks or the one I have in my car, like, um, yeah, I'd probably pretty much double those supplies if mm -hmm. I was going to Australia. Make sure I have like two tourniquets, a splint, yeah. you know, a bunch of trauma bandages, a Garmin Global inReach so you could just press the panic button, come yeah. get me. Well, and there's also something else I have to say that I really did appreciate while we were there. So I, and it seems kind of harsh, but I did really appreciate the survival of the fittest with their cattle. Because they, you know, they didn't have much pink eye. They didn't have much foot rot. And stuff that acquired, you know, got sick or whatever usually died. And so you had this just, yeah. you had just herds of cattle that were, you know, really healthy. They were um, thrifty. They were savvy. They had culture. They can live on sticks, rocks, and dirt and breathe air and drink yeah. air. And be and, fat. And like those, yeah. those 750 head we moved 26 miles or kilometers. Um, they There were baby calves. There were calves born in the pen that night. Yes. And we sorted a few back, but they were just a few day old calves that made that trip. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were, t and they, were tough. they could survive being gathered by helicopters, pinned, work all that and we're we're fine i mean they were the toughest cattle i've ever seen this and, and they were fleshy fat yeah fertile i mean it was amazing it was no blue eyes no blue eyes no lame cattle nothing because if they got lamer they blind, died they died they died sounds like we need to get rid of all the cows we have here and you bring some right. of those over no shit. Like, or just quit propping ours up and they uh there there's yeah We've talked about that for two years, Josh. Uh, yeah. I know, I know. Still, yeah. But it was really fascinating to see large herds of cattle that were not propped up. And I'll there tell you, you what, go. there you go, that kind of, that combination of socialism and, and capitalism. They can't doctor pink eye with antibiotics. That is not allowed. No, okay. it is you not. You do not do that. No. You can give them topical treatments, things like that, but you do not do injectable. No. And there's, you... If you give an animal antibiotics, it's under supervision of a vet, and it's because they've had some traumatic injury or, or something like that, not right. just casual use of antibiotics like you yeah. see here. For, 
Yeah, not just using, you know, Draxon for pink eye. Yeah. Because exactly. they had um, Jess. You just don't do it. Jess, the one muster, um, she said for pink eye, they used a vinegar solution. That yeah. was it. That's it. Topical vinegar. A topical vinegar solution. Yeah. But that's that's the treat. first time I've heard of topical vinegar for pink eye. I'm sure somebody will make a comment like, hey, dummy, we've been doing that for 60 <laughs> years. That's a common thing. I've, I've just, never heard of it. I've never heard of it. So I'm wondering what the mechanism is behind that. Because I've been I've operated under the theory for a long time that pink eye is more along the lines of an iodine deficiency than anything else. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've got some anecdotal evidence to back that, or anecdotal things to back that up. So I wonder... I wonder what the thinking is behind vinegar. No. Is it just an irritant to make them close their eye down and give a chance to heal? Or, or, and I suppose the antibiotic element, the acid probably helps too, but I don't know. I don't know. Like white vinegar or apple cider vinegar? Or I don't did know. Did you know? I don't know. We never, they, nobody was doing that. that was right. Just, she just, it, she just that said that. That was the treatment if you wanted to treat Because I asked her. I so, asked well, 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 thinking about it, I mean, there's a big difference between like store-bought white vinegar, oh and, yeah, and like raw apple cider yeah. vinegar, yeah. yeah. And there's probably everything in between. So I wonder if it would be a specific kind of vinegar, oh. or if there's a mechanism in that's just in vinegar. Yeah, I don't know. That'll be a good and question. see, my my other thinking on this too is. And, you know, we visited with Craig Guffey about this, but, um, you know, he was talking about, you know, cattle and the shape of their eyes and how the shape of their eyes yeah. affects their eyelashes and that which affects if they get pink, pink eye, eye or if right. the lasting infection. And see, in my mind, I, you didn't see any cattle with bad eye shape. There. Okay. That, that they was all had perfectly shaped eyes. So that was where I was going because if they did have the wrong shape of eye, they probably got pink eye or they didn't survive or something, you know, and in that kind of environment, I mean, you just have uh, the cattle that survive have the right kind of, um, uh, eye shape. Yeah. Eye shape and genetics and everything I, else. I was looking at the, oh, what are, KLA or NCBA magazine that came in the mail a while back and it was the bull issue and my just flipping through every damn bull in that thing had the wrong shaped eyes yes. for pink eye yeah you know that's kind of the okay and fad now I so think. can you can you maybe explain that the eye shape that okay. you're looking at because i don't think yes. i've heard that one yet. these three hanging on the wall so well, you I, want you want i can eye. see them but <laughs> yeah. nobody else okay you uh, want you want long eyelashes long eyelashes good drainage good drainage okay and when the cow or, or bull has their head in the upright traveling forward position, the eye should naturally drain out. Yes. Both directions. Okay. And we have. And a lot of cattle have the eye either rotated up or back. And so it holds and that. And so it'll hold one side or the other. It'll hold and not drain properly. Right. Okay. I mean, I, I think I could, I think I have a visualization and then, of what you're talking And then talking they about. don't have long enough eyelashes too. We've kind eyelashes of. Eyelashes are really. So it helps keep yeah. debris and. Right, and protection and everything else. And, um, yeah, I, it was, it yeah, was. Yeah, they had beautiful eyes on their cattle. Okay, and so there was another thing, too. Since we were around so many cattle, especially on foot, I was eye level 
<laughs> with a lot of cattle. And so I was constantly looking at swirls. Yeah. When we were in amongst the cattle, which, you know, the swirl and Temple Grandin has all kinds of studies about it, how their brain develops the same time as or the, the swirl develops the same time as the brain and all that for their disposition. And they had just tons and tons of cattle that had kind of a dead center like, swirl. Right, yeah. right between the eyes. Okay. Yeah, which is real steady, stable, intelligent. intelligent. I mean, it it was fascinating. And I got to look at calves, cows, bulls, everything, because you were at eye level with everything, you know. And then seeing all the different types of cattle and then checking their swirls out too, you know. It was it was it was an interesting look at just cattle in general. So yeah. How big were they? Like um, frame size, frame score and weight, you think? Oh gosh. Um there was a lot of cows big. that were, what would you say? 1,500 pounds? Would they be that big? I think you're thinking they're bigger because you were on foot amongst Well, them. that's probably true. <laughs> I, I would say I'm the exaggerating. big end of the cows were 1,200 pounds. 1,200 pounds, yeah. 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 And um, or score, I mean, they they were... But they were fleshy. They were fleshy. Fleshy. And heavy, fleshy. But, yeah. um, they were probably... They're smaller than most of the big farmer cows around here, but they were a little smaller than those commercial cows we run. A little bigger than our cows, our personal cows that we yeah. ran. I'd say they were twelve hundred. And the bulls were not big bulls. The bulls didn't no, tend they to weren't. be large. They weren't because they, were, they had to travel. Yeah, yeah the bulls they had, had to, to travel and stay legged up, and yeah. the ones that survived were smaller and and more mobile. And they some they, of the steers were bigger. Some of the steers were weighing fifteen, eighteen hundred pounds. Oh, and taller than us, and yeah, stuff like that. Bigger. I mean, yeah, it was different perspective on foot yeah. but um but almost every brahma cow that they had there had fat on her tail head and yeah. you couldn't see a single rib on her i mean yeah. fleshy fleshy were the were the continentals and the british types they were fat too they were yeah yeah they were and it's interesting they didn't really keep them separate no or anything but the different breeds of cattle separated kind of bred out separately yeah. So the Dutch belted, there was a whole kind of colony of Dutch belted. There was a whole colony of Santa Gertrudis and white Bramers and yeah. and black Angus and red Angus. And they kind of just ended some Herefords and they just kind of, they didn't really, there were mixed, of course, mingled, but they, for, they hadn't, like they said, they hadn't brought a Dutch belted bull in for 60, 70 years, but there were still Dutch belted genetics that were staying undiluted. So it was just interesting. Well, and the other thing, this was kind of interesting too, when, so for your um, lead cow, uh -huh. on when we were walking them out or when they were gathering, they were always Bramas. Oh. They were Bramas. They okay. always, they always walked out and led the pack. Do you have a theory? Intelligence. I, I think intelligence, yeah. Because they, the Brahma cows, and if you, Anytime, Brahmas are more emotionally intelligent. Thank than you. Other cats. I agree. They read faces. Yes. They read human behavior a lot more intently. Yeah. Than other breeds of cattle. Do. And when so they when we do. when we when they'd be brought into the pens and you'd you know you it narrow down into a smaller pen a smaller pen a smaller pen, your um, English bred cattle wouldn't get as worked up as your Brahmas because your Brahmas they knew it. I mean they did and they just. I just everything about them just they got tenser and tenser and more anxious and 
more flighty and stuff like that. So now, are there Bramers down there? Are they horned or are they polled? Uh, I, I guess are most cattle down there polled or horned or there's a mix? No big horns, no long. But horns mainly polled. A lot of them are pulled, but there were quite a few horns too. Yeah, there were some. And some. they dehorned calves. Well, or they nubbed did, them and they stuff. They nubbed them but, and stuff. But, um, but there were quite a few of the Bramers yeah. had some horns. Yeah. They're not common. Big, like horns like these and stuff are not no. common at all. They had a few longhorn steers that were kind of pets that were. We made those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, yes. For, for all those out in podcast land, Josh and Gwen have this beautiful house. How many, what? There's three big steers here on the wall. A, a bull, a cow, and a steer. Yeah. yeah. That one's what six feet, probably five feet. And that little Two. one here's four, four feet. Yeah. 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 So. And and the bison can't forget about the bison. Yeah. And but, the elk. Did you shoot that elk? No. No. We had a friend of friend ours. Of mine did. But um, but just I, it was fascinating. And so the other thing, you know, I don't know if all the listeners and some listeners might know this, but they also have a dingo fence there. Yeah. So the okay. dink, the dog fence goes from coast to coast, and they have north of the dog fence they have dingoes, and south of it they have no dingoes, and they have all the sheep there. Okay. And it's surprisingly effective. It is very effective. It is where the and, roads cross. They have cattle guards, and yes. then they have sonic deterrent that yeah. keep the dingoes from crossing there. And they have and a whole crew that maintains and runs that fence and keeps that yeah. dog fence up. But uh, we crossed over it several times. And it was interesting. Never saw a rabbit north of the dingo fence and saw lots of them south of yeah. I was going to, I have written down to ask about rabbits and yeah. kangaroos. Yeah. One of the things I've heard about rabbits in Australia is at night, they'll go, they'll go to the paved roads at night Oh. And they'll be grazing on the little bits of grass that are growing on the edges of the road from the moisture that condenses on the road. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the, I've heard that rabbits will just line the road and it'll look so bizarre. Huh. Huh. We did not see that. But well, but we didn't have any paved roads. I guess hardly. we probably weren't on any paved we roads weren't. at night. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. but that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And we did see lots of kangaroos. Um, yeah. He, Not as many up there in that dry country, of course. Just things are a lot more spread out. And emus. And emus and wild camels. There's a national park just to the east of Clifton Hills that has over a million wild camels in it. You and know. they are not native. Uh, no. Yeah. And the camels really good eating. The Australians love, if they get a chance, they'll shoot one and eat it. Um, and they had, on, on Clifton Hills, they had, 40 or 50 that they'd gathered up with helicopters and just had in a kind of tight paddock mm -hmm. that they were just kind of keeping around to get fat and eat. Yeah. Um, but they're very destructive, camels are, to the natives. Not that there's a lot of native habitat left. And we've talked about camels before. That was yes. your trip to Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. 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 So. Oh, I'd love to have camels here. Some camels. Not a million. <laughs> <laughs> well, doesn't uh, uh, Shamrock Ranch, Shamrock Cafe? Yeah. Yes. Are, yes. They're just right around here. She's they're, got camels. Up yeah, near Manhattan. Here, yeah. 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 My God. It's frustrating because in Australia, you could go get all the camels you oh, want gosh. for free. But, um, uh, you know, here they're so expensive, you can't even get one. Yeah. Yeah. It was, but yeah, it was if fascinating. If I could just find transportation, I could get all the camels I want. <laughs> Well, and we saw quite a few dingoes, 
and um, at the Clifton Hills, they had a couple little dingo pups that had yeah. been orphaned, so we got to be around them. They yeah, were had found orphan dingo. Pups. They were interesting. They were yeah. So yeah, so smart. A lot like coyotes. Light like coyotes. And the one was pretty friendly. The other one wasn't real friendly, but. I'm surprised you didn't try to sneak one home. Oh, oh I know. It I was know. contemplated, yes. <laughs> we kind of like our, our dogs, don't yeah. we? Yes. How, how far into that planning process of oh, sneaking one home did you get? <laughs> yes. We were wondering about mailing a package with a dingo in it. <laughs> but, yeah, it was. And I got to tell you, you know, I. So our kind of. Uh, preconception on going over there of course in my mind is spiders and snakes which we did as we were leaving the ranch oh. the, the snakes were coming out and we saw lots of taipans which are really deadly. really deadly and brown snakes and stuff like which that are really deadly. which are really deadly too <laughs> but but very few people get bit yeah but um the australians so their kind of preconception of us is having bears everywhere. They think we're under constant threat of bear attack. And everywhere. so they, really? want, yeah. they wanted to know about bears. They were like, yeah. how many have you seen? Have you ever the had an encounter? Bears. And I mean, so it was, it was kind of hilarious. And they aren't even worried about their snakes. Oh, no. You know, we oh, were no. worried about them. They didn't even think about them. And we are not worried about bears. And it was, it was yeah. quite fun to have that exchange. But the taipans are oh, like one gosh. of the deadliest. Oh, gosh. And you don't even know you've been bitten by one. The, yeah. Their fangs are like as small as like diabetes needles. Yes. And uh, you just have a stroke. There's not really any way oh, to no. knowing you've been bitten. You're you just dead. die of a stroke after well, 20 minutes. And they also said, the musters, Kane and Emma said that when they're walking cattle out, that cattle will be just walking and cattle, they'll fall over dead. And it's because the snake's bitten one. They've gotten bit by a and taipan. And a full-grown cow will get bitten and die within 30 seconds of getting bit by a taipan. Yes. The helicopter pilot said, you know, he'll watch and they'll yeah. be going along and all of a sudden just one will just go dead. It's like, oh, taipan. Yeah. <laughs> scary thought. Yeah. That's wild. And we saw we saw a bunch of them as we were uh, and being driven out. They, there Did you are... guys wear snake boots or... Just, no, no, but I, I would, I should have, I should have taken. But some I tell you what, boots. though, I you watched everywhere. In the summer, I think you'd have to. You but, watched everywhere you went, especially yeah. around water. Yeah, I mean yeah. everywhere, because there was, there was snakes. They were talking about it, and the, the snakes try to avoid you. They are not. Well, they know. do, but there's just if you surprise one, it'd be a bad. Although day. they said the brown snakes during mating season chase you, they will you. chase, they will up chase to you up yeah. to half a mile. Yeah, getting chased by. A, a brown poisonous snake. snake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no thanks. Snake. Yeah. Cool. Yes, but, Brian. But they don't even worry about it. No, they don't worry about it. But they were so worried well, if about it. you get bit, you'll never know it. <laughs> you'll <laughs> like, just well, be dead. Good point. But it was hilarious. They were just fascinated by bears here. Yeah. 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 I'll have to make a note that if anybody from Australia ever visits me to get them all messed up and freaked out <laughs> yeah, just about stuff. bears, be like, Hey, just want to let you know, when we get down here to the ranch, to get yeah. to the cabin, there's freaking black bears yeah. everywhere, everywhere, dude. So yeah. You can't go anywhere yeah. without your bear spray and just give them, like, like give them a can of car freshener with yeah. a yeah. post-it yeah. note label on it or something. Give them a tambourine. Just make noise everywhere you go. Yeah. Just walk with this, shake it all the time, and yeah. the bears will leave you alone. Uh, 
But yes, uh, overall, just I'm so glad we did it. Oh, my gosh. I yeah. am. We learned I'm, a lot. We did learn a lot. And, you know, it's good to stretch yourself. It yeah. is. What was the most surprising part of the whole trip? Like, I want to hear from both of you on this one. Mm. Um, I, something that really surprised me, the horses, uh, you know, they didn't use horses as much as we were hoping. We of course love horses and everything horseback, but, uh, they just, the logistics of everything, they use horses only mm. maybe five to 10% of the time. Um, but they had, uh, this was a horsey outfit. They really liked horses and cared about them and they had a, a pretty good pile of horses, good remuda. Um, the, they weren't really like, you know, flashy good looking by our standards maybe um but my god were they tough you know they're out there on bare rock paddocks oh. getting fed you know shoeless. little alfalfa and shoeless those the day we drove those cattle rode 50 miles drove them 26 kilometers that day those horses we were riding were shoeless and we rode oh, yeah. the same horses the next day mm -hmm. i mean you talk you, about you made a few head horses. You made some heads explode. Oh my god! I mean, oh. shoeless on the stony desert, and they were fine. I mean, our horses are so soft and propped up, just like our cows. You know, it just made me realize why the hell are we shoeing horses if if you don't have to shoe a horse in that desert, you don't need to shoe a horse here. I don't know. We weren't running. Well, we did run around quite yeah, a bit. Quite a bit. We did on you the know. sand dunes and stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I thought about that. You know, you're comment about the horses and horseshoes for a long time. Okay, we've been shoeing horses forever. Yeah. But 150 years ago, the Comanches had war ponies that cover 200 miles in a night. Yeah. And in, I mean, and we know what our country is. Yeah. Yeah. The Comanche war pony 200 miles in a night. Uh, why do we have soft horses now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because we let them get soft. We did. We mm -hmm. bred them. We made them that way. Yeah. yeah. And. Things in the outback are just maybe a little bit more harsh and yeah. not quite as soft. And there's not a horse person mm -hmm. culture or rodeo culture down there. Not as much. That, you know, that'll keep a horse in a shoebox. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and not let him get out on rocks and not let him yeah. exercise and actually be a horse. You know, Xenophon's book on horsemanship, which was what, 500 BC or something, I think. And there's a whole passage in there on where you keep your horses, make sure it is rockier than where you ride your horses. You know, in the, the, the paddock you keep them in should have rocks the size of an apple covering the entire area so that their feet are constantly being trimmed. And, and in Australia, and that I'm was gonna the do case. That. I'm going to get some big rock and haul it into where we overnight our horses and stuff because I think it's a good idea. Yeah. I'm going to do it. And I, I guess the thing that surprised me and i gotta go back to it was the flies i gotta oh. admit <laughs> <laughs> there you go um i um but you know i for coming into their operation and not knowing us and um everybody was so nice and um so welcoming and you know it is very satisfying to have the chance to prove your worth to people because you don't often get that very and be often appreciated for and it. be appreciated for it and they were all very appreciative yeah. and that was it was wonderful i mean that really was for all three of us Kristen, josh and i all three of us really 
enjoyed that aspect of it. And, and four or five of the people working there are going to come visit. I think so. I mean, it was it was looking forward to that. We'll have to do one of these with I, them yes, here. Please let me yes. know when they're coming. Oh my oh. gosh, that'd be awesome. We should do that. But you know, it's such a I if and I'll say to the listeners, if you do get the opportunity not even to go to Australia, but just go to a different ranch and work for a brief period of time or, you know, have a chance to go to a different area. You just kind of do it. You learn so much about yourself and you come back to your own place and you have kind of a, a re ideas, and renewed energy. energy and different ideas and it is good for you. It is. It so. Is. Yeah, it's one of Josh. It's one of our favorite things to do now is to go on kind of working vacations. So yeah, I've, I've wanted to ask you guys for a while. Like, do you actually take a vacation, or you just go other places to work cows? You know, <laughs> we I, mainly we prefer to just go other places to work cows. I don't really enjoy vacationing, but I love a working vacation. It's just fascinating. So yeah, and you don't lay around and get all rested up, but who the hell cares? You're learning so much and it's just fun. You know, it is. It's have, a stretch. You have to go home because you need a vacation for your vacation. Yeah, exactly. So you get some rest. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. But, so I, like the obvious question is, is, hey, do you want to go back? And it sounds like you're just waiting for another opportunity. Um, Gwen says she doesn't really want to go back because it was so difficult. I'm satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> enough enough of the flies. Well, yeah, I but am. I had a ball. I'm great. I plan on going back. Yes. And I think Josie's going to go with me. Our daughter. Uh, what we're going to try to do, and I talked to Peter about it, they still move like five to 10,000 head a couple hundred miles occasionally, depending on flooding and, and weather. And it's going to be hard to line it up because they don't know when it's going to happen. They only have a few weeks notice, but he's supposed to let me know. And if they have a big move like that and, you know, we're going, Josie and I are going, it's going to be scary because it'll be during snake season season. You have to sleep on You're the ground. You're out for a couple a week <laughs> or two doing that. Gwen doesn't out. really want to go. I respect that. I'm I'm tough, but I'm drawing a I'm drawing a yeah. line in the sand. I'm but like, no. Nope. If I get a chance to move ten thousand head of cattle horseback for yeah. a couple hundred miles, I'm doing it. Because yeah. where else in the world can you still do that? I mean, and I might, nowhere. as I get closer, I might just bite the bullet and say yes, I'll do it. But we'll get you a cot that's elevated with like a mosquito net or something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, but I'm going back. But yeah, but overall, just an awesome experience. So, and I'm so thankful to our friend Kristen who made it happen and invited yeah. us oh. to join her and uh, love her for it. So it was wonderful. Great stuff. So if you go for your next perfect vacation, where would you two want to go in Cowboy? Back oh, to Nevada. We're going, yeah. Well, next fall, we'll go back to Nevada to the sea punt. Yeah. yeah so do, that's like you do that every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, but it's super well, fun. I love so Scott and Andrew. Actually, I and I, there's not much cowboying there, but um I'd love to go ride in Iceland. Like I mean, oh, a yeah. week or two trek riding actually riding around Iceland and really seeing some of that. They have a really strong horse culture there. Um, I bet their ponies aren't shod and can do well. I bet so too. I bet yeah. They are too, They're Brian. tough little ponies. But I'd love to go there. Um, I'd I'd like to go back to Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan sometime, and to do one of the transhumanist 
drives where you move, you know, thousands of live of sheep and goat cattle through the mountain. I'd like to do that at some point. Yep. But I guess this fall, I'm, I'm sorry, this spring, we're oh, going yes. to uh, Ale- Chihuahua uh-huh. to the Las Damas Ranch, Alejandro Carrillo's place. We're going to go there just for a tour. We're not cowboying there. But, um, yes. and then in a year or two, we haven't quite decided yet. We're going to go to uh, uh, visit the Maasai in Africa. Oh, yes. And, we are um, going to do that. That's certainly not cowboying, but it's handling thousands of cattle on foot for miles and Justin, miles. Justin, I miles. need to toughen up a little again. We're going to have to train physically for <laughs> yes, that Yes, we will have to train. But I, we're we really do, looking forward to so that. So we do want to so, do that. Because yeah. as far as Josh is right, handling cattle and stockmanship, I mean, are they the oldest? I, I visited with a Maasai warrior who was here with a military group. 15 years ago when we had the and guest I learned ranch. more from visiting with him in 45 minutes oh. than I have from any other human being actually we did about handling cattle and 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 stuff it, well so I really want to get there and learn from some well and actually one of the things he told us which Josh and I still use today is um use different um insect sounds to move to different cattle to move cattle and your insect sounds different classes respond class, to different sounds that's right so, so calves respond to different Bug sounds than and cows. sounds stuff than cows do. Yeah, bulls will respond differently than cows and calves. Mm-hmm. And um, they he's they use you know dozens and dozens of different insect noises. That is very interesting. An it's awesome fascinating, thing. and yeah. we are not so when we do insect sounds, it doesn't exactly mimic, but it's close enough, and you kind of you can adjust it. According to seasons and stuff like that. And yeah. his, his advice was that using bird and insect sounds is the best way to communicate. Yes. Or, and human voices are not. You, now, you can soothe cattle with a human voice if they know you. Right. You know, and my guys that's like singing the night herding songs on trail drives and stuff. You bet. Cattle respond that to that. But if you're wanting to move cattle, and with our commercial cow herd that we have, I started yes. last summer using a very specific whistle that I can get cow, and these cows are not very savvy, I guess. Well, they, they can it. be difficult. They can be yeah. difficult, but I can whistle at cattle on another hillside and get them to turn around and move off in a certain direction just by a direct whistle that I use on them, mm-hmm. and it's very effective. It's and, fun. So. And when we, we calved out a whole bunch of heifers last year, almost, I don't know, 150 head, and we, Josh and I did it in a way that, we would kev them out, and then we'd move them. They'd have to do sort like them and move them. three or four different moves to train them to train them to mother up and stuff like that. And the insect sounds and stuff like that on the baby calves, it was fascinating. We use yeah insect noises to get the calves to move out. Yes, and we use whistles like bird sounds to move get the cow or heifers to move out. Yeah, and so we could you know sorting and stuff. Even then, the buzzing and clicking sounds would stop the calf from coming through a gate, but a whistle sound would stop a cow from coming through the gate. It's just really interesting to see. And that, so that whole thing there with new babies and stressed out mothers, it was just fascinating how that worked. And it worked well. It did. That's something I'm definitely going to have to explore quite a bit and and do, do my own observations on. So, I kind of have a a wolf, mm-hmm. like yeah, a, yeah. A, a deep too. chuffing <laughs> noise you, that I absolutely, do. Absolutely, you bet. That kind of replicates what the noise that a canine would make mm. when it's 
maybe mildly annoyed, not upset, not mad, just like, hey, keep going. And I noticed the cattle respond to that a lot more. And, you know, as, as listening to you guys talking, I'm like, we don't appreciate how a cow senses the world. No. Okay. Right. Because we have our five senses. Yep. Okay. Yep. And we have a tendency to relate the world around us by the senses. Mm-hmm. We're primarily a visual animal. That's most of our vision. Mm-hmm. That's most yeah. of our sensory input is going to be visual. Our ears, we got two good ears. They're not real big comparatively. They can't move. Sound is important, but not that important. We have a tiny, tiny little nose compared yeah. to literally everything else in the animal kingdom. Yeah. We do. Yeah. So, we, you know, the, the cattle eyes, they're out on the sides of the head. They're mm-hmm. positioned where a prey animal's eyes would be. And I look at the size of the eyes and the color of the eyes and the size of the ear on a cow and the size of a nose on a cow. And I look at that and I just, I can't help but think that cow is getting a tiny bit of information from her eyeballs. She's getting a lot of information from her ears, but she's getting more information Mm -hmm. from her nose. And so a couple things that I, that that are kind of important to talk about right now. They they say like a bloodhound has a sense of smell 50,000 times more acute than a human. Oh yeah. Which is true. For certain smells. Dogs can't smell rain. Dogs can't smell fresh cut grass. <laughs> and dogs can't smell fresh turned earth. We can detect those three things 50,000 times better than a dog. Wow. And you why? Know, yeah. And I, probably for survival. And, you know, I can even, even sitting here, I can almost recall the smell of rain or fresh turned dirt or whatever. And this is kind of an interesting little anecdote. We have one of our horses. She's, that's how she, you can, like if we get separated or whatever, and she will. Tr- she tracks by scent. She tracks by scent. And so you think she's doing something bad, but she trots long. And she, she has her nose down on kind of closer to the ground. And she's not a peanut roller. She doesn't, she's not that kind of horse. And she just tracks that scent and then she picks her head back up and trots on. It's just fascinating. And she's done and it. She'll catch a scent before oh, you yeah. can see something. And we've stop. And then you know you're coming up on cattle or horses. Oh, she's a And we've horse. cowboyed in all kinds of different states with her and she does it everywhere. Yeah. So, yeah. How part, acute that smell is. Yeah. A, a part of what I would really be interested to know. And this is this is like work for the next Fred Provenza type person. Mm-hmm. Sure. Is what information are cattle getting through their, their nose, their olfactory system yep. that drives decisions on what to go eat. Oh, I bet it's oh, amazing. Yeah. So and I'm probably gonna make people mad or whatever, but or people disagree, but okay. they, they'll th- just th- send me hate mail. It's there fine. You. Sorry, Brian. <laughs> I I think cattle can smell sugars. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think they know. So this so this is kind of interesting. So when we were shipping cattle this year and we were in we had such hot temperatures and it was so dry, there was of the mornings 
Josh and I could smell the grass curing. It smelled like cured tobacco. It smelled like cured tobacco. And it was so Sweet. distinct there. And, you know, you think about, we don't have that good of a sense of smell. Horses, cattle, sheep, whatever, have such a, be you know, much better smell. So they are picking up on all of that way before we are. And, I mean, it was so strong to us. And we talked about it, and nobody hardly else around us noticed it. People-wise, yeah. It was so interesting, you know, to kind of be tuned into that and realize and recognize what that was, you know. So, I don't know. But I do. I think cattle can smell sugars, you know, in plants. I, I could certainly buy that they smell sugars. I think there's other, like, terpenes and flavonoids mm. yes. that they're sensing to go after because... Now, there's a lot of plants that I've seen them eat that I've gone right behind and tried to get a bricks test on, and it comes up donuts or one or two percent. Ah, I'm yeah. like, why do they want to eat this at nine o'clock in the morning? There's got to be some kind of chemical mm -hmm. or, or compound in that plant mm -hmm. that their nose is telling their brain, go here, eat this because the body needs it. Yeah. It's the only explanation I can get for it. I would agree completely. Wow. So, um, man, that's been great. What do you guys want to end with? What's, mm. what's the big plans? Anything cool on the horizon for 2024 for, uh, the flying Debbie? Um, not a lot. We're, we're at a point in our, on the ranch in our lives where we've kind of, we've finally kind of got the ranch put together, put back together from my cousin's untimely death and mm -hmm. all that's, turbulence and we're kind of entering a phase of stability um where we're actually i'm actually getting things crossed off my to-do list it's <laughs> a unique feeling i've never experienced this before brian what does that feel like it is fabulous well, we, we keep i got a well house redone that i've been wanting to do for 15 years <laughs> and now i don't have to worry about it freezing every damn day of the winter like i have for the last 15 years and yeah, we're we're at that point where we're crossing things off lists and we're actually able to spend more time doing the things we really like and we're able to kind of make things better and and more satisfying and easier to operate on the ranch and it's a wonderful feeling. We're really we're busy, very busy doing it, but it's it's all paying us back immediately almost. It's so, wonderful. So Josh is right. So we're Josh and I are in our early 50s, but um, one of the things we're doing is we're setting up systems on the ranch to extend our working longevity. Okay. And so we're making things so they're... Physically easier. Physically easier and... Simpler. Simpler, yes. And we're, we're trying to make it both so we can continue doing all these jobs without hurting ourselves right. or endangering our, our health but also to where we can pass some of these chores and stuff off to other people that you, so there'll be systems that are easy to follow and recognize and, right. and operate. Right. Um, so we can replace ourselves eventually. We don't want to have to do that for a while, but. But it's, so we're making a really hard push to, you know, get those things completed and, you know, it's simple things to complicated things. Simple things, you know, every bone has its home to our water system, you know, it just, just making things easy and, um, 
easy on us. So kind of fun. Well, and then I have one other thing that we're working on too: the migration on cow. Yeah. Okay. So, I, so this I is guess there cool. you go. There's the big next big idea we're trying. Okay. Going okay. to try to implement. Lay it on me. Okay. So, you know we've. <laughs> We would love to get to where we can run our own cows and not custom cows, but you know how that is. It's that's hard to figure out and tricky. So with custom cat custom grazed cows, we are still going to try to get migratory, truly migratory behavior out of. And one way we're going to do that is we are going to move, we're going to have our own transhumanists. Yes. We're going to move our cows, our cow herd, one cow herd in one group we're going to move them through our headquarters to we have an ally that lives south of us sean rogers to his property to our property down at cassidy and then back up mm -hmm. and to our headquarters and we're going to try to do that twice through the whole season once during the growing season once during the dormant season and we're doing that to try to give our the different pastures absolute rest for extended periods of time and I and I um, wanted and I think that that will get us closer to that migratory, you know, but buffalo mimicry. And this yeah. is you're talking about like driving the cattle from here down to that property down yeah. south. Yeah, not hauling them anywhere. It's driving and taking. Back. We're even looking at a portable water system, like a tanker we can pull behind a tractor, so we can overnight them on the road. So. We can add several hundred acres of grazing to our program by grazing the ditches between here and there. Hey. I, I believe the old timers would call that grazing the long pasture. There you go. <laughs> our, we are adding some long pasture to our rotation. So, and yeah. it's actually, it'll be easier on the county if we do that. So yeah, there you go. keep the county from having to mow. There you spray. go. I mean, you're, you're just trying to save the county money you by bet. managing the grass I'm and the right. ditches. Just being a good citizen. Yeah, yeah, just doing your part, right? And, and we're talking probably 400 head that we would have in this. And, and part of this too um, is we add a little chaos into it so that the migration is, we're letting different parts of the ranch rest different, different times, times every year. Over every year. So it's not the same we're, every time. And you have yeah. to, of course, we have to allow for calving. And, we do. You know, we can't really move them very easily during, you know, early cat calf hood so we need to wait till the calves are mature and so we've just got to time it's very complicated because we have to time this out on the calendar as far as nutrition on the calendar as far as water. maturity of calves and life cycle of the cows and water availability so yeah big change from australia where you've got 12 hour old calves make it a 50 mile yeah. Yes. And 50 here, mile trip on foot. We're worried about a month old calf being able to make a 20 mile trip. Right. Yeah. Over two days. Yeah. Australia, that wouldn't even be a thing. It'd just be. Yeah. Don't even worry about it. He's a day old. He's fine. <laughs> he's, got, he's got four legs. What are you yeah. worried about? <laughs> he can make it. Yeah. But that that is one of the things. So really, you know, tap into that mimicry, the bison mimicry. Which... And add some beaver mimicry too. Beaver more work. Yep. doing spring developments and such. Uh, the water we're developing, we're trying to develop in such a way that is more beaver-like. Yes. <laughs> are you putting like little checks up some of your... We're going to do some, as we are doing tree clearing, I'm going to be building debris dams with, with the trees we do cut. Man, I haven't even asked you how your tree clearing project's going. Uh, 
It got a little derailed. Okay, and... we'll talk. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about that later. It's slow, but it's slow. <laughs> but it's coming. It's coming. But but that is one thing we're going to try to do is do debris dams and then um like spring development things that'll retain and hold water in in kind of soft ways and then where we do harvest water through either wells or springs we're going to put Store. teardrop tank and storage and gravity fed and storage to try to take the most advantage of the type of water we do have if we get enough uh, beaver ponds maybe the beavers will come back no be nice to see them down on our cottonwood river yeah, yeah. Yeah. We have some, but they're kind of migratory. They don't really stay, yep. stick around much. And, you know, I, and I don't remember. And one of the things that we've talked about in the past is, you know, how Josh and I manage and we try to manage by watershed. Yeah. And so we really tap into already the natural flow of the water systems and wildlife and everything and just kind of plug into that. And it's, it's so pleasant. It is. It really is. We're, so we're not fighting stuff. We just are not, you know. But if we add this kind of the mimicry into it a little harder and especially getting the cows in just a completely different geographic area. And um, I, I think it'll be really satisfying. So, yeah. And I, once the cows start moving, because we've moved our personal cows like this. Oh, for years. For yeah. years. And, you know, we get them headed they know where they're going right. it's it's just fascinating and they enjoy it they do they're excited to go and they go yeah so hey, we get to go somewhere new look at a I different know. piece of sky for they a while. do they do new so, grass new grass yeah so but that's the plan very cool looking forward to hearing how that works and how you guys get along with that yeah. Bye. so i uh man sure been awesome Oh, appreciate fun. you guys' time today on a nice, cool Friday. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for coming up. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me and thanks for lunch. And um, I guess we'll just go ahead and end it here. Guys out there in podcast land, see you. Have a great week. He just waved at it. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.